This is the Rocky Mountain Review for Thursday, March 11th, 2021. I'm Koda Babcock. And I'm Ivy Winfrey. And you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, Ellie Shannon will be updating you on campus news, and then I'll be delivering local news. After that, we'll be hearing from KCSU Sports Director Dixon Lawson, and I will be speaking to members of the KCS or of the CSU Fashion Show team about their upcoming event. Then, Cuddle will be delivering some national news, and we'll be hearing from Dr. Bonnie Ford about the health impacts of wildfire smoke. After that, I'll be giving new information on COVID-19 and speaking to Noelle Mason from the Collegian to review the anniversary of CSU shutting down due to COVID-19. To conclude the show, Cuddle will be giving some updates on technology, and I'll be telling you about the weirdest stories I've found recently. Let's move right into campus and local news. Today, Ellie Shannon is a bit under the weather, so I'll be covering her newscast that she wrote. Hello everyone and welcome back to KCSU's weekly newscasts. We're still in our eighth week of the semester at Colorado State University. There's great news from CSU researchers that have been studying a key protein that is linked to neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's. James Bamberg and Laurie Minamide are researchers for CSU's Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology, and they have been developing this research along with other colleagues and their research team for over 30 years, according to Ali Ruckman of CSU's College News. On March 9th, it has been one year since CSU students left campus to isolate at their homes as as the coronavirus started to make its way into the United States. Since the start of the pandemic, CSU has reached over $16 million in COVID research, according to Noel Mason of the Collegian. A year later, we're now getting the entire population vaccinated slowly but surely. Lori Student Center recently installed an 80-kilowatt solar array on its roof. The panel is projected to generate 113,000 kilowatt hours of clean electricity in its first year. The solar panel was funded by student fees allocated through ASCSU's legislation from the spring of 2019, according to Jill Jones of CSU's College News. Make sure to tune into the Rocky Mountain Review Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m. and tune into KCSU on 90.5 FM. Again, a special thanks to Ellie Shannon for writing this. I'm Koda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Now for local news. Hello, my name is Ivy Winfrey, and this is your local news for the day. The Colorado Department of Transportation is asking drivers to prepare for significant snow and cold temperatures this Friday. According to Miles Bloomhart at the Coloradoan, the city of Fort Collins and the Colorado Department of Transportation snowplows are geared up and now await what meteorologists are calling a significant snowstorm with one to three feet of snow forecasted through the weekend. While the plows will be out in force, CDOT asks motorists to keep a close watch on all the weather and road conditions and urging them to stay off the roads during the storm, which is expected to start Friday night with the worst conditions occurring on Saturday. CDOT crews will be focusing on clearing I-25, I-70, I-76, and I-225. Snowplows will make multiple passes on these highways during the storm and will not be able to plow secondary routes until the worst of the storm has passed. This could result in many roadways becoming heavily snowpacked, making for hazardous driving conditions. CDOT said that heavy accum- accumulations are possible along I-25 and I-70 and other highways in the foothills along the Front Range. Treacherous travel is also expected on I-70, I-76, and across the eastern plains due to high winds and drifting snow. CDOT encouraged motorists traveling on I-70 to the mountains or other areas areas expected to be impacted to leave before Friday evening to avoid the bulk of the storm. 
discovering it is discouraging travel in high volume areas such as the I-70 corridor, Denver metro area, and I-25 South Gap construction zone between Castle Rock and Monument during the storm. It is likely those roads will be closed for safety reasons based on the severity of the storm. CDOT is asking motorists to limit travel during the storm to emergency and essential reasons, with a vehicle and tires properly equipped, and to pack an emergency kit with blankets, food, batteries, water, and a shovel and survival supplies. Also, motorists should not pass a snowplow and be alert to the possibility of a chain and traction laws going into effect on certain sections of highways. The city of Fort Collins has a website to track the snowplows at fcgov.maps.arcgis.com. Colorado Governor Jared Polis and state lawmakers have outlined a plan for a $700 million stimulus package. According to the Associated Press, Polis and state lawmakers said they plan to spend $700 million on job-creating transportation projects, sustaining a multi-billion dollar agriculture industry, and delivering critical aid to small businesses battered by the coronavirus pandemic. The $700 million comes from unexpected state revenue that surpassed expectations after lawmakers cut more than $3.5 billion from the state budget last year. The one-time spending over the next 18 months is intended to sustain small businesses, a farming economy battered by the uncertain markets, the pandemic and sustained drought, worker training for those jobs, those losing jobs in fossil fuel industries and in infrastructure, Polis said. It follows $300 million in emergency spending the legislature authorized during a special session last year. It doesn't take into account, at least for now, the billions of dollars worth in federal funds that are forthcoming to Colorado under the $1.9 trillion stimulus package passed by Congress on Wednesday. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. After the break, we'll be hearing from Dixon Lawson with the RMR Sports Report. Stay tuned. Hey there, my name is Shane Zweigart. I'm the technical manager at the Music District here in Fort Collins, Colorado. I love to listen to KCSU because it has the best variety and also the best up-and-coming new music that keeps me aware of hot new things out there. If I feel like I'm stuck in a rut of listening to the same music, it kind of pushes me out of that rut and gets me into something new, be it electronic music or rock or hip-hop or something that I've never heard before, and I really like that. I appreciate being challenged a little. I was listening to KCSU one day, and I thought, my God, that song is super cool. It was this band Applesauce Tears, and it like totally blew my mind. I was like, what a weird name. And the song was like totally interesting. And I love listening to music that has different production ideas and just different tones and sounds that I'm not used to. And it was one of those moments where I was like, man, I love this radio station. They just play, you know, you wouldn't hear that anywhere else. I mean, I jump around from all the other radio stations, and this has always got the most interesting collection of music to hear. The band that I play in is called Wirefaces. I am the drummer and the singer of it. I guess one of my favorite memories of KCSU is that I've been driving around late at night, like two or three in the morning, and I've heard my own band's music played on KCSU. And that's always that moment where I'm like, I want to tell one of the guys in the band, I'm like, dude, they're playing our music. You got to listen. But then I'm like, oh, wait, it's 3 a.m. No one cares. But hey, at least they're playing it, you know, and uh, it still makes me very happy. I think KCSU is special because... You have young, fresh minds bringing whatever influences they had and from wherever they're from, if they're from Colorado, if they're from out of state, coming to this radio station and, and trying to contribute to the programming. And I think that that creates some of the most diverse programming you're going to hear 
in gosh and probably in the whole state for the most part you know and there's just so many different influences i think that they're uh, bringing in here i think that kcsu for the fort collins community is a sense of approachability and connectivity and also just a breath of fresh air i mean they're just always bringing something interesting to the airwaves and i really appreciate that it's one of those stations that i've been listening to since i was probably 16 and back then always trying to see what's out there through the radio still you know you know before internet music was really accessible this radio station helped me find out about all kinds of great bands I think that listeners should donate to KCSU because what else are you going to do with your life? Not donate? What's wrong with you? Come on. I think that is very valuable for this town to have KCSU, a student-run radio station where students can get hands-on experience with uh, making shows and uh, just touching people's lives and making cool uh, different playlists that, you know, enhance this town in ways that you wouldn't normally get. I mean, it's not every town that has a great student-run station like this and very lucky and fortunate for it. This past year has brought some interesting challenges and KCSU wants to hear your voice. Looking back at the past year, how do you think universities could have handled COVID-19 better? Let us know by leaving a voicemail at 970-491-2388 with your thoughts for the chance to be featured on 90.5 KCSU. Lawson, and you're tuned into the RMR Sports Report for the week of March 11th. On today's report, we have a quick recap on the golf tournament, as well as a special update, or announcement, I should say, about Rambler's show tonight, 7 to 9, on 90.5 KCSU FM. First off, we're going to be talking about men's golf. They just wrapped up the 2021 Lambkin Grip San Diego Classic. Against a very high-level field, Colorado State posted its best round of the tournament and improved two spots to finish fifth at the tournament on Wednesday. The three-day, 54-hole tournament hosted by University of San Diego and San Diego State University was placed at the San Diego Country Club, a par of 72, total of 7,033 yards, in Chola Vista, California. 
the Rams posted their best score of the event, shooting an even par 288 to finish at 13 over, 877 in fifth. Second round leader UCLA finished at 4 over, 868 to win the event by six shots over Nevada at 10 over, 874. Washington was third at 11 over, totaling at 875, with co-host San Diego in fourth at 12 over, 876. Parathakaran Suwasari was a top was the top ram at 1 over 217 following a final round even par 72 tying for 11th overall. AJ Ott rallied with his best round of the tournament for CSU, a 3 under 69 and moved up to tie for 17th at 3 over 219. Davis Bryant tied for 23rd at 5 over totaling 221 while freshman Gunther Bruin and Ramseth Helgem, each in their first collegiate event, tied for 55th overall at 10 over 266. Devin Bling of UCLA won the individual title at 4 under 212, one shot ahead of San Diego's Ryan Bishrat. Last but not least, be sure to tune in tonight, 7 to 9 p.m. on Ramblers to hear Scott Niles' recap of the women's tournament live from Las Vegas, Nevada, as well as a breakdown of the upcoming men's tournament starting tonight. Catch all that and more tonight at Ramblers 7 to 9, as well as be sure to catch RMR every Tuesday and Thursday, 4 to 5 p.m., right here on 90.5 KCSU FM, Fort Collins. My name is Dixon Lawson, and this has been the RMR Sports Report for Thursday, March 11th. All right, today I'm joined by Alex Gusdorf and Clara Schultz from the CSU Fashion Show. And just to start out, I'm going to have them introduce themselves, if both of you would mind, uh, with your name, pronouns, and your role in the CSU Fashion Show. Um, my name is Clara Schultz. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I am on the videographer um, team for the production um, of the Fashion Show 2021 Emerge. And yeah. Yeah, and I'm Alex Gustorf. My pronouns are he, him, and I'm also a videographer for the fashion show. All right, thanks. To start off with, what was it like to work on producing the fashion show in more of a pre-recorded format? Um, I I thought it was really cool. I mean, this is the first year that I think they have had like journalism majors in the class um, because normally it's it's like all majors within it's normally like within that college. So I think it's really cool that like this is kind of the first year that they've needed people like Alex and I to um, help record the show because or else they wouldn't really know what to do and they wouldn't have the equipment for it. So, yeah, I thought it was really cool. Yeah, and uh, I really liked it because it was nice to be a part of a bigger production that's already been in the works for like months at this point. And so to be able to step in and focus only on the skills that I have and not worry about everything else that's going on has been uh, a lot of fun and challenging in its own way, but in a great way. And if you remember, what were some of the designers themes for this year's fashion show? I, so they do like the, a collaboration with Otterbox and like Otterbox picks um, specific designers um, to design like one piece of clothing for their collection. And so I really, really like that collection. It's like very colorful and bright and um, really cool patterns and flowy. Like there's just, it was really cool. Um, and then another one of my a collection that I remember is this like sports, like athletic collection kind of. So like they have leggings and sports bras and 
um, all sorts of things. And it, I thought it was really cool. It has the tint, like this um, tint of orange is kind of like the pop color for it. And that was a really cool um, design. Yeah, one of the ones that I really liked was, it was kind of like an edgier collection. Um, there was like vests with like big buckles and chains and stuff. And there's like a pocket for some lighters, you know. Um, and it was all kind of just baggy, but it looked like something I could see a lot of people wearing. There's actually two other collections that I really, really liked. Actually, just this one, it was really cool. Um, it was like the, there is like wedding um, dresses. So it's really pretty. They had like a lot in that collection too. So it was really, really cool to film that and see that. And, it, and like the wedding dresses kind of blow in the wind. Um, and then also something that's newer, I think, I don't know if they've, anyone's ever done this before, but there's a collection for like concealed carriers. And I think it's all women's um, clothing. So like it's for, it's because like, a lot of times I think the whole idea was like a lot of times like concealed weapon carriers for women, like they don't have a lot of clothes, clothing options. And so they wanted to kind of make it um, different and have more options out there. So that was something that was different this year for sure. How was modeling and what was that like? Um, how was it different really because of the pandemic and did that change the atmosphere at all? Um, I think it changed it because typically the fashion show happens at the Lincoln center, I believe. And so it's just a traditional runway um, but because we are getting to be a little more creative, uh, because of virtual being virtual, um, there was kind of a cool walking path, walking down the stairs of the Richardson design center building, uh, walking down the stairs and then walking around some trees. We built a, a really cool set, um, that they walked by and then walked through this tunnel where they all kind of posed for the camera at the end. They, so the models didn't wear masks while they were walking, but they were like six feet apart. So it definitely was different because they were more spread out. Like, so it was just a little, and like the whole thing, it's normally like they walk down the runway and they could turn around and go back. So it's kind of more like this, how it's normally in fashion. But um, I think it was really cool. Like we worked with what we had and made the best of it. And so you're able to see all the models coming down like six feet apart from each other. Um, yeah, so it was really cool, but definitely like different than in the past. For sure. And what were some of your personal favorite parts of working on the show this year? My favorite part, um, obviously I really loved the whole video aspect of it. Um, this is what I love to do. Um, but uh, like all the meetings once a week and collaborating on how we're gonna build these sets, what we're gonna do, and then just the actual building of it, because um, beforehand it was a little overwhelming, not overwhelming, but it was a lot to like think about of what's gonna happen, is this gonna come together? But then once we were actually building stuff, it, I could just start imagining like how I was gonna uh, record all this. The same for me. I really love the collaboration aspect of it. I think it's so cool. I think there's like a lot of schools out there that do a lot of this, like collaborate between um, colleges and stuff like that. Like I like especially schools that are very like art focused. But yeah, I think that was my favorite part the collaboration aspect because my roommate and is how I kind of got involved in all this because she's a director on the one of the committees, the marketing and promotions committee in the class. And so um, and I have like a lot of friends that have been in the fashion show or like done stuff in the fashion show in the past. So I was like, this is so cool that I'm like actually able to be a part of it. Like I never would have thought I'd ever be a part of it. 
in my college experience, but because of COVID, I have been. So that's been really cool that to see like the two colleges kind of emerge together. All right. And then when will the fashion show become available to those who purchase tickets? The fashion show, I believe, is premiering on April 9th. If anyone is interested in still getting tickets for the fashion show, where can they go? So they can go um, on the CSU Fashion Show Instagram, which is CSU Fashion Show. Um, It's called Emerge, and then it's in their bio. So it's a little link there, and it's on eventbrite.com. All right. Thanks so much. Uh, Do you have anything you'd like to add before we go? Get your tickets now. Yeah, I'm super excited, and thanks for all the support. All right, thank you so much. Again, that was Alex Gustorf and Clara Schultz from the CSU Fashion Show's videography team. Again, the fashion show becomes available April 9th, and the premiere is at 7 p.m. and ends at 10 p.m. If you want to access tickets but don't have an Instagram, you can also look up CSU Fashion Show, and it should take you to the College of Health and Human Sciences here at CSU with a link. Again, I'm Coda Babcock, and we will be right back. Support for KCSU comes from the Lisa Rinkjob Agency Incorporated with American Family Insurance, with offices located in Fort Collins and Greeley. Protection, peace of mind, and trust has been their priority since 1992. Learn more about Lisa Rinkjob Agency Incorporated and American Family Insurance at lisarinkjob@amfam.com. And we are back on the Rocky Mountain Review. You just heard about the upcoming virtual CSU fashion show. I'm Kuta Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. This is National News Highlights for March 11. The American Rescue Plan, which includes $1.9 trillion in coronavirus relief, received final approval from the House Wednesday before being sent off to President Joe Biden to sign it. According to Barbara Sprunt at National Public Radio, the American Rescue Plan dedicated money for vaccine distribution and education, schools, small businesses, and social supports, including child tax credits and a stimulus for adults. Republicans have largely refused to help Democrats in making this a bipartisan effort, with Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell labeling the bill a wish list. While the bill was passed by both the House and Senate already, it had to return to the House to approve of recent changes made by the Senate. Democratic senators say that this bill focuses on both the economic and health crises caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. U.S. lawmakers and authorities are focusing on the organized domestic extremism that led to the Capitol siege. According to Alana Durkin, Richer, and Michael Kunzelman of the Associated Press, there is a particular focus on a group referred to as the Oath Keepers. 
This group was present on the day of the Capitol siege, along with the Proud Boys. Officials say they'd been planning the assault on the nation's capital for months and worked to blend in with larger crowds to infiltrate the building using military strategies. This means that the attack wasn't incited by the president in recent days or weeks before the attack, but potentially was started much further in advance. More than 300 people associated with these groups have been charged so far, with more being faced with criminal charges as the investigation continues. Kenosha shooter Kyle Rittenhouse's trial is being delayed to this November. According to Bruce Villametti of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and USA Today, both Judge Bruce Schroeder and Rittenhouse's defense team said that the delay was necessary for the trial in a virtual pre-trial hearing Wednesday. Rittenhouse is charged with the is charged for the murders of 36-year-old Joseph Rosenbaum and 26-year-old Anthony Huber, which occurred after Rittenhouse showed up armed to active protests in Kenosha following the police shooting of Jacob Blake. He also injured 26-year-old Gage Grosskritz. Rittenhouse's defense claims this was done in self-defense. The man was released on bail in November 2020, just three months following the shooting, after those who support his actions donated $2 million for his release. That's all for national news highlights. I'm Kota Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Now we're going to be hearing Ivy Winfrey's conversation with Dr. Ford about the health impacts of wildfires. Today I'm joined by Dr. Bonnie Ford, a research scientist at the Colorado State University Department of Atmospheric Science. Dr. Ford is here to discuss a study they helped conduct concerning the long-term health benefits of the Colorado wildfires. Dr. Ford, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So first off, would you be able to explain to us um, what the study entailed in terms of methodology and what was it trying to find? So our research group um, does a lot of work on the health effects that are associated with exposure to wildfire smoke. Um, And so in this study, we were looking at um, the different the health effects um, in Colorado along the Front Range um, associated with smoke from local fires, so fires here in Colorado, and then transported wildfire smoke. The way that we assess exposure, and that's the atmospheric science part of it, is that we use um, information from ground level monitors, so monitors that are measuring PM 2.5 with these small particles, and we um, create a kind of an average surface to get those concentrations, and then we determine which ones are smoke impacted by using satellite observations to know the extent of that smoke plume. And then from the epidemiology side, we are looking at um, data from the Colorado Department of Public Health. And so we look at both um, vital statistics, so death records, and we look at um, hospital emissions data. And so what we do is we look at times when people are exposed to wildfire smoke and then see what the associated health effects are. Were there more people going to the hospital? What were they going to the hospital for? Or were there more um, deaths that were associated? What kind, what were the underlying causes of that? Um, So that was the kind of basic premise of the study. And we've looked in different places. um, We've looked in Oregon um, and looked at kind of the health effects there or the utilization. So are people going to the doctor? Are they going to the hospital? Are they going to the pharmacy? Um, So what was very different about this study was that we were looking um, at different seasons. And again, these different where we had long range transport of smoke. So smoke from fires in the um, Pacific Northwest in California, and then these local fires and seeing, was there a difference in the health effects that were associated with 
this. And so in this study, we saw that there was a difference. Um, so we know that smoke is associated with negative health impacts. I think that's something that people that have experienced wildfire smoke would remember that it's like, oh, when I'm exposed to smoke, I cough a lot more, I have itchy eyes. So we know that there are some of those, but when we're actually looking at these records and trying to associate those, we saw something kind of interesting where we saw that the um, long range transport had a bigger impact and it actually seemed protective, which means that we didn't see as big of an impact from these local fires. Um, and one of the things that we um, were hypothesizing why this might have happened is based on people's um, recognition of smoke. And so if people see that there's a fire nearby, they're getting those warning signs, they might be taking some measures to reduce their smoke exposure. So they might be staying indoors, not exercising. But if they don't know that there's smoke, if you have this long range transport where the smoke is more dilute, it may not smell like smoke, you may still just think, oh, it's a little bit cloudy or foggy out and you're gonna go about doing your normal activities and you would actually be exposed to higher concentrations. Um, so that was kind of the interesting part of this study um, that kind of stuck out. Um, yeah, that part about the differences between the long range and short range smoke was very interesting. Um, would you be able to explain to us some of the differences between these two forms of wild of fire smoke outside of just the distance in which they are um, affecting people? Yes. Yeah, so we know that there could actually be chemical differences in the smoke. So it could be that there's actually like different, um, the, the toxicity could be different. Um, so we know that there are changes in the smoke composition as it gets transported. Um, we didn't actually study that in this study, so we weren't actually looking at the composition. Again, we were just looking at that total measure of PM. So there could be differences there um, in the smoke. Um, so it could be that the smoke was actually potentially less toxic or more toxic, depending on um, the, the age of the smoke, or even could be differences based on the fuel that's burned, so the types of trees and um, the types of um, bushes and things like that. So, so there could be some difference. We did not, again, study that in this study. Instead, what we think that was more the issue here was, the, was people's perceptions of the smoke. Um, there could also just be some differences in, you know, the exposure, again, of who's being exposed at different times. Um, we try to control for that, um, but that could also be a difference as well. At what distance does long-range smoke uh, change classifi classifications into short-range smoke or vice versa? There's not um, a specific, um, we think of long-range transport when we're thinking like it's coming from out of state, um, but that, that's not a, a direct, um, there's not a hard definition of what's long or what's short-range. Um, and it also could be based on you know, if we're talking about the differences in toxicity, it's going to be on how long it takes to, to transport as well. Um, so generally, when we're talking about long range for this study, we were talking that it was coming from outside of Colorado. When we're talking about this local, this was right up the, the fire that we looked at was the um, High Park fire, which was in 2012, which was just right up the pooter. So that was very hyper local. Um, and, you know, we think about the, the fires that happened last year, those were local, the Cameron Peak versus when we also got smoke last year from California at the same time that we were getting um, smoke from Cameron Peak. So we had both the local 
and the long range at the same time. So, which again can be hard to separate then. So what are some of the implications of these findings? So what the big implication is you need to be paying attention to your air quality really when there is just because it kind of might look nice out doesn't necessarily mean that the air quality is good or if it doesn't smell like smoke doesn't mean that there's not smoke present. So, um, you know, often people are coming up with looking at their plans for the weekend. They're going to look at the weather, right? Is it going to rain? Is it going to snow? Um, we're going to get a big snowstorm this weekend. Maybe I shouldn't be planning to have another park get together. The same thing people should be doing for air quality. You should be looking at what's the air quality like? Am I making decisions that would benefit my health or would harm them, right? Um, and we know in Colorado, wildfire season is expanding. You could be exposed to smoke a lot more. So that should be part of your kind of everyday um, planning is that you're looking, what's my air quality? Am I being exposed? What are the kind of risks that I want to take or that I expecting other people to take? Um, so I think, you know, if we're seeing that there's a difference in the health effects, um, when people know that there's smoke, when people can take those measures then to protect themselves, I think that that would, um, you know, that's beneficial in the long run. So besides knowing what your air quality is, it's then also knowing what you can do to protect your health and the health of your loved ones. So when it's smoky out, it's not a good time to be exercising, especially doing, you know, long runs, long bike rides, um, stuff where we're going to have to, you know, breathe heavily. Um, you should, you know, close your windows at night. You shouldn't be just letting that smoky air fill your house. Um, if you can, you know, um, change out your filters in your house. If you can run a HEPA filter, that's great. Um, um, make sure that you're drinking a lot of water um, and you're just, you know, being really cognizant of how you feel when you're exposed to that air. And then also protecting people who are more, more vulnerable. So older people, children, and people with pre-existing conditions, so things like asthma or any respiratory issues. That was mostly about individual implications. Do you think this data or these findings should impact how governments and uh, emergency information practices um, inform the public about wildfire smoke? Yes, definitely. That is a great question. We are really um, trying to think about ways that we can help people better communicate the health impacts of wildfire smoke. <laughs> And how can we do better messaging? Um, we think about, you know, communities getting alerts for, you know, again, for weather and changes, we should be doing more air quality alerts as well. And I think that's becoming more common, especially I think when we're realizing we still have a lot of air quality issues. Um, but yeah, local government should be, they also need to be aware of where to get good information on air quality. Because if you think about, you know, the city is also running a whole bunch of, you know, organizations, um, sporting events and things like that. Should we be canceling those events? Should we be changing venues, things like that? And then also we have a duty to protect people that may not have the resources to protect themselves. So um, it would be great if there were places that people knew that they could go to during poor air quality events um, that they could go to for clean air. So having a place that's designated as a clean air shelter, you know, thinking about you know, our homeless population here, they still deserve to be protected. Um, some, this can be an issue then if we're not considering the people in our community 
that may not have, again, the resources to protect themselves. So yes, I definitely think both on the warning side and on finding ways to help protect our vulnerable populations that governments should be um, definitely taking interest. And again, this is going to become a bigger issue. We know that there's that there should be more smoke events in the future as we as the predictions are that wildfires will continue to increase into the future in the western US. The study primarily as you said doesn't look at specific health impacts but it rather was looking at hospitalization data and mortality rates. Um so it was it was uh, categorizing them by different health effects so it was looking at like what the hospitalizations were for so things for you know all respiratory events um for um asthma events um so it does look at those individual ones. It didn't look at some of the, you know, kind of smaller individual events, like just like inhaler usage. We have used that in, looked at that in other studies, um, but it does look at the classification. So we use the, there's a, a classification of diseases when they do, cause this is medical billing data. And so we can look at things again for asthma, pneumonia, acute bronchitis, um, ICD, kind of things like that so right yes thank you for the clarification um i wanted to ask so this was mostly backed up with hospital data correct um so there was so it's yes there's the hospital data um that's included in this um we have done other studies where we've looked at um other usage not just emergency room or um, urgent care data so so do you think based on that data as well as this that the situation is um, particularly um, more or less serious than maybe this data would suggest just by looking at this study? I think we're definitely only looking at kind of the tip of the iceberg because we're looking at the really, you know, when you're talking about death or hospitalizations, those aren't um, accounting for all of the like lesser events that more people are going to experience, right? So um, we're not going to be able to see, you know, if people are missing school or missing work um, from those kind of, you know, regular asthma kind of, again, these ones where it's not as um, a drastic of an outcome. So I definitely think we're only looking at the, the kind of tip of the iceberg. I think there's a greater amount of the population that may have um, experiencing health impacts that are, you know, not death, not a hospitalization, but that just wasn't looked at in this study. Again, we've done other studies where we have looked at um, different outcomes. So our group has participated looking at um, birth outcomes and like, again, pharmacy refills and things like that, but just not in this, in this study. So yes, I think there are many other health effects that we um, didn't look at. So there's a greater impact on a greater number of people. That is all the questions I have. Again, I have been speaking with Dr. Bonnie Ford, a research scientist with the Colorado State University Department of Atmospheric Science. Dr. Ford, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. We'll be right back.
this past year has brought some interesting challenges, and KCSU wants to hear your voice. Looking back at the past year, how do you think universities could have handled COVID-19 better? Let us know by leaving a voicemail at 970-491-2388 with your thoughts for the chance to be featured on 90.5 KCSU. Four Cons Bike Co-op is an organization whose mission is to build community through bicycling. They provide the tools and expertise to help fix up any bike, new or old. Hours of operation are Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays, 2 to 5 p.m., and Sunday from noon to 6 p.m. For more information, check out their Facebook page, Four Cons Bike Co-op, or email info at fcbikecoop.org. I'm Coda Babcock, and welcome back to the Rocky Mountain Review. If you missed any part of our show so far, always remember to check us out on Spotify at KCSU News or on our website at KCSU FM after the show. Now for COVID-19 updates. Colorado State University reports over 2,500 cases of COVID-19 among students, staff, and faculty at the university. COVID-19 saliva screening is available on campus at the Mac Gym, as well as at a few other locations. For more information on those resources, you can visit covid.colostate.edu. Larimer County reports nearly 21,000 cases of COVID-19 and 230 deaths, with the county ranking its COVID risk score as medium. On the state-style framework, Larimer County is at level yellow, which means residents should still be concerned about COVID-19 risk and working to protect themselves and others by wearing a mask and limiting exposure to other people outside their household when possible. 66 new positive cases were reported Wednesday, with 21 COVID patients in the hospital. Overall hospital utilization is looking all right at 69%, but ICUs are beginning to fill up as they've reached 80% capacity. 377 outbreaks are reported in Larimer County and nearly 115,000 people have been vaccinated for COVID-19. In the past two weeks, each day has seen a minimum new daily case rate of 15, but positive cases have never made up more than 10% of all test results. Larimer's 14-day case rate sits at a high 257 per 100,000 residents. The state of Colorado reports nearly 440,000 cases of COVID-19 across the state and just over 6,000 deaths caused by complications of the virus. Over 4,000 outbreaks are reported and over 2.6 million people have been tested. Nationwide, over 29.2 million cases of COVID-19 have been reported, along with nearly 528,000 deaths. Wednesday, cases increased by around 60,000, while deaths increased by around 1,500. Cases have gone down by 16% in the past two weeks, and deaths have gone down by 30%. The northernmost border between Oklahoma and Texas currently is seeing a rise in cases, while other previous hotspots hot seem to be cooling down when it comes to new cases. The Northeast and Southern California are still experiencing significant COVID-19-related deaths. The only way for those not yet eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine to protect themselves and others from virus transmission and complications is by washing your hands for 20 seconds regularly, using hand sanitizer, wearing a medical face mask or cloth face covering, avoiding touching your face, and staying at home when possible. Information from this segment was gathered from the CSU COVID site, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, the New York Times, and the Centers for Disease Control. For information on vaccine eligibility in Colorado, go to covid19.colorado.gov. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Today, I'm joined by Noelle Mason from the Collegian to talk about the year anniversary of CSU closing campus due to COVID-19. 
So how are you doing today, Noel? I'm doing all right. Thanks for asking. Of course. So a year ago, Fort Collins and CSU started shutting down to try and control the spread of COVID-19. When did CSU researchers decide to take the pandemic into their own hands? Um, I think pretty shortly after CSU closed, um, definitely the wheels were in motion immediately after the campus closed. And I think even probably even a little before then, but I think the earliest that CSU got involved with testing research was early April when the Veterinary Diagnostic Laboratory was issued a certificate to process human COVID tests. And um, I think it's still being used to process COVID tests today. All right, thank you. Can you remind us all of what COVID-19 shutdowns meant for students living in residence halls? Yeah, students living in residence halls, um, basically after after spring break, they had to move out and weren't allowed to live on campus for the rest of spring semester. Um, I think in the fall, luckily, most um, residence halls were able to remain open. And um, I think definitely the testing strategy that CSU developed really helped in being able to keep residence halls open. And what about CSU's reopening strategy this year allowed for students to stay safe both on and off campus? And why does that matter? Um, I think the testing strategy that Dr. Mark Zabel here at CSU um, developed with some of his research colleagues, um, the saliva test, which allows samples to be pooled and then um, it catches positive tests quicker and it allows us to sort of isolate outbreaks on CSU campus. Um, so I think that's been instrumental in allowing campus to stay open and track outbreaks and put put an end to the spread before it really starts to begin. Definitely. And now that multiple vaccines are available for use, how is the university continuing with pandemic planning? Um, to my knowledge, I think they're planning to have most students and faculty vaccinated by uh, the beginning of next school year. I know there are several vaccine candidates being researched at the university, um, which will just help to have a variety of responses, even as there are already vaccines available to the public. All right, and then to finish up, how did diversity of knowledge really allow for CSU researchers to thrive when looking into vaccines and other um, research related to COVID-19? Yeah, it was definitely super helpful that um, there was already a lot of research going on on campus in especially vaccines um, in response to tuberculosis or other vaccines like rotavirus in humans and in animals. Um, so it really sort of gave CSU researchers a leg up in already having that foundation of knowledge on how to create a vaccine and where to go, how to change their approach when approaching a virus like COVID-19. For sure. Again, that was Noelle Mason from The Collegian. If you want to read Noelle's article, you can find that at thecollegian.com, which mostly discusses the end of the full year with COVID-19 being an issue on campus. All right. Thanks again, Noelle. Thank you so much. We'll be right back with tech news. So stay tuned on the Rocky Mountain Review, only on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins.
this past year has brought some interesting challenges, and KCSU wants to hear your voice. Looking back at the past year, how do you think universities could have handled COVID-19 better? Let us know by leaving a voicemail at 970-491-2388 with your thoughts for the chance to be featured on 90.5 KCSU. Maximus, have you caught the latest gladiatorial match? No, but I plan on catching the recap on the KCSU Sports Podcast. KCSU always has and always will bring you sports. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. You just heard from Noelle Mason looking back at the past year of COVID-19 restrictions on campus. I'm Koda Babcock and this is Tech News for Thursday. Twitter is suing Texas's Attorney General for retaliation following their ban of former President Donald Trump. According to Jake Blyberg and Barbara Ortute from the Associated Press, the lawsuit says that Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton used his office to retaliate against the platform. Paxton began an investigation into several social media sites, including Twitter, after their decision to deplatform the former president. He described it as a, quote, seemingly coordinated deplatforming of the president, end quote. The removal of Trump from social media platforms followed the insurrection at the Capitol. Twitter responded to this investigation with a lawsuit, which says that Paxton is trying to punish the site for taking Trump's account offline due to concerns of violence. Facebook is working to dismiss cases related to antitrust from the U.S. government. According to McKenna Kelly from The Verge, the Federal Trade Commission, alongside multiple state attorney generals, filed lawsuits against the social media platform, accusing Facebook of monopolizing and participating in anti-competitive behavior. The case asks courts to remove WhatsApp and Instagram from Facebook's acquisition, making them each separate companies. The motion to dismiss this lawsuit claims that the FTC says that the two, progr- the two other programs were potential competitors rather than describing them as active competitors, posing a threat to Facebook's longevity. Russia's internet regulatory agency has slowed Twitter service to serve as a warning to U.S.-based social networking sites. According to Lucian Kim from National Public Radio, Russia has slowed down internet speeds for Twitter due to ignored requests for companies to take down content that could be harmful to children. Their hope from this action is to influence U.S. companies to follow Russian regulation relating to children and assert power over social media companies that choose not to. That's all for Tech News. I'm Koda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. I can't stand commercial stations. (laughs) I can't do it. My name is Danny Grant, and I'm the general manager of Mishawaka Amphitheater, and I am on the board of Rocky Mountain Student Media. I really need that interaction with the DJs. It's few and far between. You know, public radio, community radio, college radio is the only place where I can find myself engaging and at KCSU, I have a connection to this place. This is our university. This is a place that is near and dear to my heart. And so I want to support and I want to listen and I want to be there with the kids finding out what they're finding out. I think it's imperative that people support their local college radio stations. And, you know, if we if we don't do it, we're not going to have the quality students coming out of here. We're not going to draw the best and the brightest here in journalism and in broadcasting. And I think, you know, why wouldn't you? We get so much from it. What's five, 10 bucks a month to support something that we're enjoying every day? Consider helping us continue to share excellent content with you by becoming a member of Club 905. Donate only $7.50 a month by calling 970-491-2388. 
888-5278 or online at kcsufm.com backslash donate. Hi, this is Adam and Antonia from Jets Overhead. And you're listening to KCSU 90.5 FM, your radio. Hello, my name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Sometimes, things need to get a little bit weird. So here's some of the weirdest stories I've found from around the world today. A recent study has found that Zoom calls trigger human fight-or-flight responses because people cannot escape the squares of close-up faces. According to Kararia Kelly at Business Insider, a recent study from Stanford University has found that staring at faces on a screen all day could set off the same psychological reaction as a threat or attack. Jeremy Balenson, director of the university's Virtual Human Interaction Lab, published his take on what's driving Zoom fatigue in a peer-reviewed report citing academic psychology, communication, and human-computer interaction research to support his theories. Balenson said, quote, The brain is particularly attentive to faces, and when we see large ones, we interpret them as being close. Our fight-or-flight response, uh, from an evolutionary standpoint, if there was a very large human face close by to you, and it is staring right in your eyes, you were likely going to engage in conflict or mating. Neither responses are a good fit for a work meeting, end quote. While video conferencing is crucial to business during this time of social distancing, Balenson's research suggests that the medium can be more taxing and intensifies everyday work communication. Balenson says that the best way to combat this is in two ways. First, in Zoom calls, minimize your self-view window to prevent yourself from constant self-monitoring. And second, ask participants if video is required or if the work can be performed via just audio. Balenson said that these are the best ways to minimize the possible stress and triggering of the human fight-or-flight response in the mind and make work and meetings much more pleasant. A Canadian man's $32 trillion lawsuit naming the Queen of England and the Prime Minister of Canada, among many others, has been thrown out by the Supreme Court of British Columbia. According to staff at Nanaimo News, Tyler Chamberlain filled a lawsuit against the Insurance Corporation of British Columbia in 2020 before he began adding outrageous claims and defendants. In the lawsuit, he alleged that he, quote, suffered physical and emotional injuries, end quote, in a 2018 incident where he was hit by a car while riding his bike. Since then, he amended his claim, adding as defendants, the Queen, the Canadian Prime Minister, the Premier of Canada, the Supreme Court of British Columbia, the Elections Court of British Columbia, Nanaimo Regional General Hospital, and several other parties. 
Judge Douglas Thompson described the plaintiff's demands as wide-ranging, noting, quote, It includes a private audience with Her Majesty, a suspension of trade with China, the dismantling of Transport Canada, the postponement of an election, the release of classified documents, the cleaning up of the swamp, the reconstruction of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, an MRI of his entire body, $32 trillion in 500,000 shares of Tesla, end quote. The hearing March 1st in the British Columbia Supreme Court in Nanaimo necessitated lawyers for seven defendants to appear via teleconference. Most applied to have uh, the case's, quote, irregularly filed documents be struck out, end quote. Some asked for an order preventing the plaintiff from making further court filings. The judge found Chamberlain's approach to seeking relief against parties other than ICBC was wrong and said that the plaintiff's claims are not reasonable and are, quote, scandalous, vexatious, and otherwise an abusive process, end quote. Only one of the defendants sought reimbursement for the legal costs, and the judge said he would not make a costs order unless the applicant chooses to press the issue. And that's all the weird news I have for today. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU in the Rocky Mountain Review. And now, for the weather. Today we're looking at rain and snow showers with winds reaching 9 miles per hour with a high of 45 and a low of 28. Friday we'll have the same overall weather conditions with a high of 38 and a low of 28, so just a bit colder. This weekend will be snowy, with highs in the mid-30s and lows in the late 20s, with winds between 15 and 20 miles per hour. Moving on to next week, Monday will give us a break from the snow with partly cloudy skies and a high of 38 with a low of 21 degrees and 9 mile per hour winds. Tuesday, rain and snow are set to return with a high of 39 and a low of 22, and the same wind, wind speeds as Monday. And for Wednesday... You'll have to tune in to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins from 4 to 5 p.m. on Tuesday for the Rocky Mountain Review or listen in after the show at kcsufm.com or on Spotify. Information for this segment comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today as well as Thomas Taylor, Asher Korn, Stephanie Keel, Hannah Copeland, Addison Lambert, Samuel Bailey, Sam Bonefe, Elliot Hutchinson, Matt Guzmarati, Maddie Erskine, Jonathan Gillum, Ben Kruger, Ben Haney, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, Taylor Sandal, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Ivy. And finally, we couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time.